Yeah, let's pray together, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for building your church in this world, really since the time of Adam and Eve. And we bless you and praise you that you've given the means of assurance to your people. You've given the holy ordinances to your church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the primary means of grace being the written word of God. We pray that you would help us to have a better understanding of these precious truths, of these wonderful gifts that you've given to your church this evening as we open up your word and study it together. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17. And as you're turning there, I want to share with you, long ago, back when I first got married, and Amy and I moved to Akron, Ohio to be part of a church plant there, and uh, to, to my everlasting shame, we read The Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren, and tried to figure out how to have a cool church, and uh, I was the guy that played the keyboard. And we did church there. For nine months without ever taking the Lord's Supper. And someone said, you know what? We haven't taken the Lord's Supper since we started this. And everyone went, oh yeah, we should probably do that, shouldn't we? And I had to learn that's one of the most precious gifts God gave his church. is the Lord's Supper. But at the time, I didn't understand it biblically. I didn't see how important it was biblically. And my hope is that this evening, you'll see more why these things are so important to God's people, why baptism and the Lord's Supper are so important to God's people. Genesis 17, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. May God bless the reading of his holy word. And before we uh, get into uh, my sermon uh, here this evening, I want you to take your uh, Red Trinity hymnal and turn to page 864. Page 864. And I just want to read the first little bullet point under the chapter of sacraments, right in the middle of the page there. Chapter 27 of the sacraments. I just want to read Roman numeral 1 before I get into my message to you this evening. So page 864, chapter 27 of the sacraments, Roman numeral 1. 
Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him, as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world and solemnly to engage them to the service of God and Christ according to his word. The story of Christianity is really the story of Christian theology. Christianity is the story of Christian theology. The reason God breathed forth the scriptures to us was to replace what the Bible calls the elementary principles of the world, namely the worldview of unbelief in all of its forms, to replace that with a revelation in propositional form of the truth regarding creation, providence, history, human death, earth's past, why our languages are confused, what marriage is, and etc. Scripture is the only source of God speaking that we have in the church today. It's the only source that we have that is God-breathed. It's the only source of the voice of God in the church. Now, when the Protestant Reformation happened in the 16th century, they called this great truth that the Bible is the only source of the word of God that we have. They called that sola scriptura in Latin. It means scripture alone. And when you hear the phrase sola scriptura, what that really is addressing is the number of sources of divine revelation that we have. How many sources of divine revelation are there in the church today? Well, there's only one, the scriptures. And it's a vital truth. Sola Scriptura is a vital, vital truth. One of the great short summaries of how we are to practice Sola Scriptura, how we are to live that out in our lives, is the very last bullet point in the opening chapter of the Westminster Confession. Point number 10 of chapter 1 says this, The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, Doctrines of men and private spirits are to be examined and, who, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture. If only the church had practiced that from the beginning, we would be a lot more united. In fact, if the church had always practiced that from the beginning, everyone would be a Presbyterian. The blessed truth of Sola Scriptura, sadly, is very often not practiced. One of the most heartbreaking parts of pastoral ministry is the recognition that there are really godly, well-meaning, sincere believers in Jesus Christ that are hopelessly, it looks to me, hopelessly divided over the issue of sacraments. These wonderful signs and seals that God gave his church, he gave, them, gave it to his church in the Old Testament, we just read about circumcision, and in the New Testament. They were supposed to be the means by which we were united to each other. They were to put a visible difference between us and the rest of the world, but sadly, they're the means by which many of us are divided from each other. In fact, all of divine revelation in Scripture is given by Christ to his church for us to unite around. That's kind of the whole point. Jesus prayed that we would all be one. Now, there's a sense in which we are one with our brothers and sisters, no matter what denominational label that they wear. But we're supposed to unite around the truth. And I want to remind myself and remind all of you, it's a sin to misinterpret Scripture. It is a sin to misinterpret the Bible. We often don't think of it that way, but it's very true. Mishandling, misapplying, misinterpreting, misunderstanding Scripture is a very serious sin against God. Over and over again, as we've gone through Luke's Gospel and just reading through the Gospels, 
Jesus rebuked theological error with very simple appeals to scripture. He would hear something that people believed that was wrong and they owned the Bible. And what would he say to them? Have you not read what Moses wrote? Haven't you read this? Haven't you read that? Haven't you read what Moses wrote? You err not knowing the scriptures. Haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? Jesus believed that the Bible was clear, that we were supposed to be able to read it and understand it. Now for me, discovering the great confessional tradition of the Reformation was a huge blessing in my life way back in 1998 was when I discovered that it wasn't Roman Catholicism that had catechisms, but Protestant churches had catechisms too. I'd never heard of such a thing. And I went through numerous ink cartridges on our printer, printing them off. This particular chapter of the Westminster Confession of Faith, is, it's not on baptism and it's not on the Lord's Supper. We have a whole chapter just on our sacramental theology. And it's one of the most helpful things that's ever been written on this topic, in my opinion. Chapter 27 of the Westminster Confession is one of the most helpful things you could ever study to really get your mind around what the Bible teaches about sacraments. This chapter was a lifeline to me, not so much because of what it says, but because of the passages of scripture it points to. Now, for me, growing up in Cincinnati, Ohio, I had for years and years argued with friends I grew up with that I went to high school with and played sports with that were members of the Church of Christ, members of what's an offshoot of the Church of Christ called the Christian Church. I used to argue with those guys forever about baptism. And they believed what I could only describe to you as baptismal salvation. They really thought you're saved by being immersed by them in one of their churches. And they would quote passages to me, and I just didn't know how to answer them. I didn't know how to respond. I knew that they were misinterpreting them. I knew that they weren't handling them correctly, but I just didn't know how to respond to them. Now, think about some of these passages. I'm just going to read them to you here. When Paul the Apostle made his defense to the Jerusalem mob, remember in Acts chapter 22, he tells them about his conversion on the road to Damascus, and he tells the crowd what Ananias said to him when Ananias was sent to baptize. Remember, Ananias goes to Paul and he's blinded for those three days. Paul says, here's what Ananias said to him when he was blind. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And my friends from the Church of Christ would quote that to me. Well, he said, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. And people would say to me, Patrick, would you ever say that to someone? I'd be like, no, I would never say that to someone. I would never tell someone to arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. But I didn't know, how do you respond to that? What, what is Ananias talking about when he says that? Another one, Acts 2.38. Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. See, you have to be baptized to get remission of sins. 1 Peter 3.21, there is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. People would say, see, it says we're saved by baptism. And argued a lot with Roman Catholics too. They would quote the same Bible verses. They would quote the, the words of institution from the Lord's Supper. Jesus took bread and without any qualifications or caveats or any disclaimers, he said, this is my body. He said, he didn't say this represents my body. He didn't say this signifies my body. In fact, he uses the Greek term, I me, which means to be. He says, this is my body. And I was told again and again, you guys, you Protestants don't take scripture at face value. You read it through your Protestant glasses. 
Now, as a Christian, I knew that baptism did not save me. And I knew that baptism didn't justify me. How did I know that? How did I know that? Because of the chapters and chapters and chapters of biblical revelation that teaches how we're justified before God. How are we justified before God? By faith in Jesus Christ, not by baptism. There's no mention of baptism in any of those chapters. It's by faith alone in the person and work of Christ alone. Faith apart from works. Faith apart from circumcision. Faith apart from its new covenant counterpart baptism. Faith apart from anything done in us or done by us or done to us by ministers. We repent and believe and are justified before God. And yet baptism is extremely important. And we want to have a biblical view of its role in the life of the church and in our Christian lives. Now, how did the church's understanding of baptism and the Lord's Supper go from being rather simple, rather straightforward in New Testament times and real early on? How did it become these unbelievably contentious doctrines that divide sincere believers? You know how that happened? Failure to practice sola scriptura. That's why. Why are we so divided? Because people have their traditions we have what we're raised with, what this is what we're comfortable with. And I'll tell you, I had an allergic reaction to the idea that baptizing a baby was Christian baptism. I thought I went I grew up and went to school with every with everyone I knew was Catholic. And they'd all been sprinkled as babies. And I knew what it meant for them to live grossly, morbidly immoral lives, to boast and brag about it in the locker rooms and high school and everything else. The idea that baptizing a baby was Christian baptism was absolutely ridiculous to me. And it took a long time to put aside that tradition and take a fresh look at God's word. Sacramental theology is actually quite a bit less complicated than I had been making it for years. The two sacraments that Jesus gave his church, baptism and the Lord's Supper, they were intended to be rather straightforward in terms of how the Christian people are to understand them. And I hope that you will see this as we walk through our confession and look at many passages of scripture together. The Westminster theologians, you gotta love those guys. They were brilliant men of God. They were very biblical and they were very smart to put an entire chapter just on sacramental theology first and then a chapter on baptism and then a chapter on the Lord's Supper. That was a brilliant move on their part. They wanted to spell out, here is our understanding of sacraments in general first. Now, here's how we understand what baptism is. Here's how we understand what the Lord's Supper is. Many have wondered how baptism and the Lord's Supper became as corrupt as they did under the rise of the specter of the Roman Catholic State Church in Europe early on then. Early Christianity prior to what's known as the Edict of Milan. That's an important uh, historical uh, document. The Edict of Milan is what made Christianity legal uh, in the Roman Empire. Prior to that, it was illegal. Uh, It was very dangerous to be a Christian. In 312, the Edict of Milan made Christianity permissible legally. And before that, before that happened, Christianity was a very pure church. The church was very pure. And by pure, I mean it didn't have very many hypocrites in it. Because it was so dangerous to be one. If you were a Christian, you were a real Christian. Because it could cost you dearly to be one. The church was, for the most part, it was true believers and their households. True believers and their children. People did not become Christians for many reasons other than being convicted of their sins and seeing in Jesus the only hope of their salvation. There was no peer pressure. There were no youth groups where people were pressured to come make a profession of faith back then. People joined the church because they knew they were sinners and they were overcome with, with the wonderful love and mercy of God in Christ. 
Jesus and being saved by him, that meant everything to them. That was everything to those people. And because of this, purity among the professing church, their witness to the world, and the scale of their missionary expansion has pretty well been unmatched since those days. You had to be a real Christian to wear the label because it was very dangerous to do so. After the Edict of Milan made Christianity legal in the year 312 AD, things really began to change in the Christian church. Constantine, the emperor, made Christianity legal. He's the one who did the Edict of Milan. But it really was Constantine's successor, a man named Theodosius. Theodosius encouraged people in the Roman Empire to become Christians. He encouraged them to get baptized and come into the church. And you can read about this in the church history volumes. We have a lot of church history volumes in our library. I would encourage you to read about it. Read about Constantine. Read about Theodosius, the Edict of Milan, and the effect that had on Christian theology and on the makeup of the Christian church. I want to read one paragraph from a really good historian named Bruce Shelley. He said this, quote, The advantages for the church were real enough, but there was a price to pay. Constantine ruled Christian bishops as he did his civil servants, and demanded unconditional obedience to official pronouncements, even when they interfered with purely church matters. There were also, listen, there were also the masses who now streamed into the officially favored church. Prior to Constantine's conversion, the church consisted of convinced believers who were willing to bear the risk of being identified as Christians. Now, many came into the church who were politically ambitious, religiously disinterested, and still half-rooted in paganism. This threatened to produce not only shallowness and permeation by pagan superstitions, but also the secularization and misuse of religion for political purposes, end quote. And I want to tell you that is exactly what happened. All sorts of superstitions start coming into the church because the Bible does not contain Long discourses on the nature of the sacraments, because it doesn't really need to, they became a playground. The, the baptism and the Lord's Supper became a playground for these superstitions among this huge influx of unconverted people to the church. Baptismal regeneration, the idea that baptism saves us, it actually regenerates people, makes them right with God. That's a belief that took hold very early on in church history. Unconverted people were coming into the church in huge numbers after Constantine, after Emperor Theodosius. Sure, the the persecution stopped, so that that was a good thing for God's people in one way. But the fact is, the persecuted church has always been the strongest church. Always. Throughout the entire history of the church, when Christians are persecuted, they will win more people to Christ than they ever have. The masses of pagans who suddenly joined the church were clearly unconverted. They were clearly unconverted and had no interest in Jesus, no interest in the gospel. Superstition came into the church. And that's a problem in the Christian church. Now, what is superstition? Superstition is, quote, belief in the direct agency of superior powers in certain extraordinary or singular events or in omens and prognostics. In other words, a superstitious person sees a black cat and thinks that that actually has something to do with bad luck in their future. A superstitious pagan would see Christian baptism and would immediately think it was some kind of magical rite. That I, I want that to happen to me. I, I want to be baptized too and then get this magical covering or this magical cleansing or whatever. For Christians, however, we have to limit our beliefs to what the written word of God says about the Lord's Supper and baptism. 
Our intuitions, our thoughts, our ideas, our likes and our dislikes are fallible. They're fallen and they're potentially in error. And this is why we have to try with the help of God to limit ourselves to what scripture says and only to what scripture says and also to all of what scripture says. The superstitions, the errors, the almost magical views of of sacraments that grew up in the church, they were not the product of, of careful, thoughtful, consistent biblical study. The church ceased to be a group of convinced followers and their children willing to pay the price for knowing God through Christ. The institution, the church became overrun with superstitions, with pagan practices, and an entire slew of anti and unbiblical ideas and practices which corrupted nearly every doctrine of the faith, especially the sacraments. Have you ever wondered how in the world did it ever come to the church was literally selling salvation in Martin Luther's time? This goes back to this stuff. Why were they worshiping Mary? Why did they have statues and icons and pictures all over their churches and the stations of the cross and, and pilgrimages to go look at relics? It has nothing to do with the Bible. It has nothing to do with scripture. It's superstition that came into the church. If everyone held to a God-centered and biblical view of sacramental theology first, there'd be a lot more unity than there is. Too many believers, they stop short of what scripture does say. And too many believers go way beyond what scripture says when it comes to sacraments. And the result of that is the division that we see in the church. With that said, let's look at what scripture teaches about sacraments in general before we take a look, a specific look at baptism and the Lord's Supper. We need to do some Bible study. We need to do some Bible study. And there's a number of passages I'd like us to look at. And these are intended to be illustrations of what our confession calls sacramental language. And I want to tell you, if you're, if you're not tuned in, you need to, need to hear, hear what I'm saying. If you don't understand sacramental language as it's used in scripture, you will never understand baptism or the Lord's Supper. And you may go for decades on end and still not understand baptism and the Lord's Supper. So that's the first thing. In point two of our confession, just listen to the way they put this. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation or sacramental union between the sign and the thing signified. Whence it comes to pass that the names and effects of the one are attributed to the other. If you don't understand what I just read to you, you'll never understand sacraments biblically. If you don't grasp that, we will always fall into one of two extremes when it comes to baptism and the Lord's Supper. We will either do this. We'll misinterpret scripture and we'll become sacramentalists who think that baptism saves you. Or baptism justifies you before God. And we'll think that the Lord's Supper is some kind of a converting ordinance, which we should give to little babies and things like that. We'll make that error. We'll become hyper-sacramental. Or we'll, be, we'll go to the other side. We'll look at sacraments and basically see them as useless. They don't do anything, so what's the point? We, we don't even need them. Our attitude will be baptism, the Lord's Supper. Yeah, we can take them or leave them. Yeah, we should do them out of obedience, but they don't really do anything. They're not really that valuable to us. Martin Luther described this as a drunk man that gets up on the horse and then falls off the other side. And then the drunk guy gets back on the horse and falls off the other side. Hopefully, hopefully we can get on the horse and stay on the horse tonight. That, that's one of my goals. If you don't understand sacramental language, you're going to really struggle to understand God's word on this, on this issue. So if you're still in Genesis 17, please look at that again. Look at verse 7 of Genesis 17. This is not hard to understand. And I want to encourage you, when I finally got this point, I remember thinking, how did I miss this before? How did I not see this before? Look at Genesis 17, verse 7. You see it? 
God's speaking here. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. Okay, now just wait for a second. Verses 10 and 11 are critical here. See verse 10? Look at what verse 10 says. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. Okay, stop there. Notice, God calls circumcision what? My covenant. He calls the sign my covenant. But what is circumcision? Is circumcision a covenant? No. It's a sign of a covenant. Look at verse 11. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So the sign, circumcision, is a sign of the covenant, and yet what does God call circumcision? He calls circumcision my covenant. He calls it what it's a sign of. Is God allowed to do that? Of course. Of course. And that should not confuse us. That should not confuse us. And just to make sure everyone understands that circumcision is not a covenant, he says in verse 11, and this is the sign of the covenant. So God will sometimes call the sign what it signifies. This is my covenant, he says about circumcision. What else does God do that with? This stuff. The bread and the, and the wine. What does Jesus say about the bread? This is my body. Now, is it literally his body? No. But that's what it's a sign of. Okay, it's the same thing with circumcision. Is circumcision a covenant? No, it is not. But he calls it my covenant because God likes to call the signs what they signify. Does that make sense? There's no reason for us to be confused about this. No reason for us to be confused about this. Matthew 26, 26. Listen to scripture. Listen to the way Jesus says it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples, said, Take, eat, this is my body. Notice the sign, bread, is spoken of by God as if it is what it signifies. Jesus' body. Is it his body? No. Not literally. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood. Is the wine of communion the blood of Jesus? Literally? No. Same thing here. God expects us to get that. The Lord's Supper is bread and it remains bread. It's wine and it remains wine. But they signify the body and blood of Christ. And therefore, sometimes the signs are called what they signify. Circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. But God calls circumcision my covenant. Yeah, are you tracking with us? Remember 27.2 in the Westminster Confession and looking at all the passages that they cited, it was like the lights finally came on. I finally, that's why God speaks of it like that. That's why Ananias said to Paul, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. He's speaking sacramentally. He's speaking of the sign of baptism as if it does what it signifies. Now we know it doesn't do that based on dozens of other chapters of scripture, but God has established a pattern very early on in Genesis where he likes to do that. He likes to call the signs what they are signs of. And there's no reason for anyone to be confused about it, right? So if everyone would just listen to this sermon, the whole church would be, would be united, right? It's not that hard. 
For the longest time, those passages, they, they just bothered me. I didn't know how to understand them. I really thought that Paul would have said, after Ananias came to me and said, Arise, Ananias, be baptized and wash away your sins, that Paul would have said, after I sat Ananias down and corrected his errors on baptism, then I went to Jerusalem and started preaching. <laughs> but he doesn't do that. Ananias had no problem telling Paul, be baptized and wash away your sins. Now, did Ananias think that the water of baptism actually washed away people's sins? No. He's simply speaking sacramentally, just like God always has. God likes to talk that way. Is it okay for God to talk that way about his signs? Of course. God can do whatever he wants. The sign of justification before the coming of Christ was circumcision. It was spoken of by God in the same way. This is my covenant. The bread and the wine are signs of Jesus' body and blood. This is my body. This is my blood. Baptism is referred to as the washing of regeneration because that's what it's a sign of. It's a very important point of application. I just want to remind you of something. We all, we all know this, but we need to be reminded of it. If you ever read something in the Bible and you don't like it for some reason, the problem is you. Okay? If something is worded a certain way and you go, eh, I don't like that. That doesn't, that doesn't fit with my theology. The problem is you, not the Bible. Not scripture. I used to read what Ananias said there, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. And I would think, I would never say that to someone. I would never say that to someone. But as long as we have a biblical understanding of sacraments, we'll never fall into those errors. We'll never fall into the hyper-sacramentalists and we'll never fall into the who cares about sacraments, they're not important. All one needs to do to avoid those errors is look carefully at the way that God talks about the signs of his covenant of grace. He calls the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, my covenant. Stephen, in his sermon in Acts chapter 7, he calls the Abrahamic covenant the covenant of circumcision, he calls it. In Acts chapter 7. Is circumcision God's covenant? No. Is circumcision a separate covenant? No. It's the sign of the covenant. Stephen is speaking of circumcision just like God does, as if it is what it signifies. The parts of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine are called my body, my blood. Are they literally his body and blood? No. They are bread and wine. But they signify his body and blood. And in the mind of God, it is perfectly appropriate to call the signs by what they signify as long as you understand this. Would you believe I went through this material one time a few years ago on a Sunday morning and there were two Roman Catholic people here that day? <laughs> and when I said, is it literally his body? And they both said, yes. And I said, no. Is it literally his blood? They both went, yes. And I said, No. Was Ananias a sacramentalist? No, Ananias wasn't. Neither was Jesus. God is not like that. They're signs. A sign is a sign. It's not a covenant. The bread is a sign. It's not Jesus' literal physical body. The wine is a sign, not the literal blood of Jesus. What Ananias said is perfectly appropriate as long as you understand it biblically. Now, if a person insists that circumcision is actually not a sign of it, the Abrahamic covenant, which God says it is in Genesis 17, 11. But let's just say someone insists, no, circumcision is some kind of a separate covenant. A sign, a, it's somehow a separate a covenant in and of itself. I, I just would ask, how can a sign be a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. A, a sign can't be a covenant. A sign is a sign. How could the sign of Christ's body actually be Christ's body? The simple truth is circumcision is not a literal covenant any more than the bread is literally the body of Jesus, nor is the wine the blood of Jesus. The text of scripture is perfectly fine. It's infallibly true exactly as it's written. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The problem is never that we have a better understanding than God does. The problem is we're not understanding it biblically. I hope that you see it now. I hope you see God uses sacramental language. He does that a lot. He does it from the beginning to the end of the Bible. So get used to it. God likes to call his signs what they are signs of. So when Jesus says, this is my body, when the minister says, this is my body, you do not bow down and worship the bread. They're signs, and signs are not what they signify. They are signs of what they signify. Now, the way our confession speaks of this, there is a spiritual relation between the sign and the things signified, such that those who have the gifts of repentance and faith, they receive spiritual nourishment from them. They are real means of grace. They're means of increasing our assurance, strengthening our faith. The circumcision Abraham received as an adult, it was a seal to him of the justification he had by faith alone. Now the circumcision of Esau that he received as an infant signified and sealed nothing to him since he never did believe. The circumcision that Ishmael received likewise signified and sealed nothing to him since he never believed either. The circumcision that David received as an infant, because David did grow up to become a believer, it did signify and seal his justification. I wanted to cover that introductory material because sacramental theology has by necessity been a major part of my own life and studies because of how fractured the church is today over it. I wasn't born into a reformed church, so I had to figure out where are we going to go to church? All these Reformation traditions, they all disagree on what the sacraments are and how they work. So what we've covered here at the outset is, I believe, the primary focal points of those divisions. So let's look quickly just at point one again of the confession. Listen to it again. Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace, immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and his benefits and to confirm our interest in him as also to put a visible difference between those that belong unto the church and the rest of the world, and solemnly to engage them to the service of God in Christ according to his word. So think about this. The word Trinity is not in scripture, but we all believe in that precious truth. Now, some are not comfortable with the word sacrament. Many people associate that with Catholicism. If you prefer the word ordinance, that's fine. You can think of baptism and the Lord's Supper as the ordinances of the church. In fact, our shorter catechism asks the question, what is a sacrament? You know how they answer it? A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. Now, why does the confession call sacraments holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace? Well, they're getting that language directly from Paul in Romans 4, verse 11. Listen to this text. And he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. A sign is simply something by which something else is made known. When Moses threw down his rod and it became a serpent before Pharaoh, that was said to be a sign that Moses was speaking for the one true God. These holy ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, our confession describes them as signs of something else. The first key lesson to know about baptism and the Lord's Supper is that they are signs. They're signs. They point to something else. They point to what they are signs of. Now, if baptism was the means of our justification before God, then it wouldn't be a sign, would it? It wouldn't be a sign. It would be the means of salvation itself. It would be a pointer not to the washing of Christ, not to being baptized into union with Christ. It would be the very means of our salvation itself. Circumcision, the actual rite of circumcision, 
The cutting away of the foreskin was a sign of the spiritual reality it pointed to, namely the cutting away of the sinful nature and the regeneration of that individual. Circumcision was a sign pointing to those spiritual realities. That's why over and over again, the Israelites were told, circumcise your hearts unto the Lord. What is heart circumcision? That's the new birth. That's being born again. Circumcision was a sign of regeneration, of justification before God. It was a sign of those things. Now, circumcision was not regeneration. Circumcision was not the means of justification. Because circumcision is exactly what the Holy Spirit says it is in Genesis 17, 11, namely a sign in Romans 4, 11, a sign, it must be distinguished from the saving grace of which it is a sign. Okay, circumcision never saved anyone any more than baptism never saved anyone. <clears throat> Fewer revealed doctrines in scripture are clearer than that. Now, I want you to remember something. The Westminster Standards, they define repentance unto life and they define saving faith by the same introductory phrase. Repentance unto life is a saving grace. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. Now, why doesn't baptism start with baptism is a saving grace? Because it's not a saving grace. Baptism is a sign of saving grace. It's a sign that points to the spiritual reality. Why doesn't it say the Lord's Supper is a saving grace? Because they're not saving graces. They are signs of saving graces. And as signs, they have to be distinguished permanently from the graces of which they are signs and pointers. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs, and it also says they're seals. What does that mean? It's a seal. So this, what we're about to do here is a seal and a sign. The confession says that. They're seals. Why does it call them seals? Romans 4.11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. A seal, please listen, a seal is something which authenticates or confirms that to which it is affixed or appended. Okay, a seal is something that authenticates that it's from God. Think about this. In the book of Esther, Esther 3, verse 12, listen to this text. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. Now listen carefully. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. So the king writes this decree, this document, and has his seal put on it. They had a little soft piece of wax. You guys have seen this before. And the king had a ring that had his special seal on it. And he would put that into the wax and then pull it out. And then his seal was on the document. What did that do? It authenticated that the king really wrote it. It authenticated to the people that the king really wrote that. When one graduates from college or graduate school, you get a diploma that usually has an official seal of that educational instituted institution affixed to it. In fact, when I was writing this sermon, I got up and looked on the wall. Uh, my precious wife had my diploma from RTS in Jackson, Mississippi, put into a frame for me. And sure enough, there's the seal of the educational institution, Reformed Theological Seminary. The seal is to make it clear to the recipient of the diploma that it's legitimately coming to you from the institution that gave you that diploma. My Master of Divinity degree has the seal of RTS on it, along with the signatures of all the faculty. The institution did not give me a diploma with a seal and those signatures on it for their benefit. Why does that document have their seal on it? For me. 
so that I know it really came from them. It also lets other people know. I didn't just make this up. This, that's their seal. They put it on there, and those are their signatures. So that is for my benefit, not for them. Kings had a special seal that they would affix to documents that contained their decrees, their laws, their wishes. Sacraments do exactly the same thing for us. Sacraments do not save us. God saves us through the work of his spirit in our hearts and lives and the effectual application of the work of Christ to us by his Holy Spirit. Sacraments show us that we really do belong to God. That we have his seal upon us. We have that impress of the wax seal from God. This is just as much true for the professing adult believer as it is for their children. When God opens the womb and grants children to believers, those children belong to God, not to us. And they are to be admitted into the church as part of the covenant unit called the household. And commenting on that seal that King Ahasuerus put onto that document, the commentator G.I. Williamson wrote this. This is a great quotation. Williamson said this. The message of Ahasuerus was authentic without the seal. Did Ahasuerus write that decree? Yep, he did. Was it really his writing? Yes, it was. Did it really come from him? Yes, it did. But the seal was put on it not to make it a real document or a real decree. Listen, it was actually the king's decree without the seal. The seal was added to assure the king's subjects that the message really was from him. It is so with the sacraments. Sacraments do not cause grace. Neither is grace dependent upon the sacraments. The sacrament is of benefit only to those who are receivers of grace. It is a benefit because it makes known or declares the salvation which believers receive and which is therefore distinct from the sacrament. It is a confirming testimony to the believer concerning what he has received. And we'll pick it up there next time. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us seals of your covenant of grace so that we have the great spiritual work that you've done in us to justify us, to declare us righteous and forgive us. We have it confirmed and we are given even further assurance by the seal of the Lord's Supper, by the seal of baptism. Help us to think about these great gifts you've given to your church, that Christ is the one who commands them, And we're also commanded to understand them rightly. We don't look to baptism to save us. We don't look to the Lord's Supper to save us. But rather, as our confession says, as your word teaches us, to confirm our interest in you and to be a seal that your grace has been operative in us already. And we pray that you would bless us as we partake together now in Jesus' name. Amen.